APRA acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of APRA and the National Boards. I'm Tash Miles. Today we're talking about access for everyone to good, safe healthcare. What does accessible healthcare look like and what are some of the barriers for people achieving that? How do we open the door to all corners of our communities and ensure that people can access the care and information they need? And when things don't go right, how do we make sure this is heard and acted on? Joining me today is Hamza Bayani, a member of APRA's Community Reference Group, and Darlene Cox, who was a former member of APRA's Community Reference Group, or CRG, and also Executive Director of Healthcare Consumers Association, Inc. Welcome, Hamza and Darlene. My name's uh, Hamza. My background is a health consumer with um, lived experience, I guess, of um, the healthcare system, in particular from the perspective of my children who've got ongoing uh, chronic healthcare needs uh, and also caring for uh, older parents as well, and of which one of them is a recovering stroke patient. So I have a fair amount of uh, engagement um, with the healthcare system and have seen examples of healthcare access being truly wonderful when it works um, to average to pretty poor um, and fundamentally believe that uh, consumers and communities should be partners uh, and when things go wrong the regulators need to be accessible and embracing of um, health consumer perspective. Hamza you're definitely a perfect person to, to be in this conversation. Darling, could you tell us a bit about yourself please? I've been working at Healthcare Consumers Association in my current role as Executive Director since 2008. So that's 13 years I've been advocating for consumer interests in healthcare. I've been a member of Healthcare Consumers Association since 1996, so that's 25 years this year. And it's amazing how many things that we're still um, advocating for, uh, for improvements around uh, meaningful ways for people to com- make complaints about their healthcare, for complaints to drive change, for people to have access to information about the health services in a way they can understand. And fundamentally, we're still seeing issues around informed consent, that it's not done as well as it needs to. So uh, I was on the community reference group for APRA from 2013 and finished at the end of last year. Saw the introduction of this incredibly complicated regulatory system a fantastic win for consumers, without a doubt. But boy, is it a hard thing to understand. Um, so look, happy to have the conversation. Really interested to hear your questions, Tash, and let's see where it takes us. Let's start by talking about what a good healthcare experience looks like. Hamza, could you talk about that from the perspective of the communities and, and, and family members and, and friends who you identify with and and what is important for you and them? A good healthcare experience is one that's in context with the people who are receiving or engaging with that healthcare system. So if you're working with uh, children and you're a carer or a parent with children with complex needs, I think it's really important that the healthcare system not only speaks to and engages the parents and carers, but also engages Uh, children all too often we have situations where um, you may be advocating on behalf of your child but if your child is aware of what's happening they're almost a passive recipient 
at times to decisions or care that's going to be delivered to them. And I think that's fundamentally something that we need to think about. So, you know, that's an example of in, in, in context care. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, we have an elderly uh, parent who um, was a very articulate person in his own right, my dad, um, who had a stroke. Um, the key part of the stroke for him was um, he developed um, uh, significant aphasia, which is a speech impediment. So suddenly one of the very things that he was very clear about in his life, in terms of his identity, his ability to do business, to advocate for himself, to, to, to express himself, uh, was abruptly taken away from him. And the whole adjustment process around that um, you know, was challenging for him, for us as his immediate family, and for him in social situations. That being said, though, dad found different ways and other ways and does find other ways of communicating. So it might take a bit longer, it might be a bit slower, but he definitely knows what choices he's making and he definitely follows the conversation. So what we've learned and observed over the time is, is when we're talking about significant things to do with advanced care planning, for instance, or we're talking about a review of his healthcare or setting goals for his speech therapy, he should be driving that and has the capacity to drive that. So again, in context, care for him means he's part of that conversation, co-designing his care and his recovery, rather than that being done through me or others as um, intermediaries or, or, uh, uh, in terms of family members, even though we may be well-intentioned. We can be part of the process, but it's his care, it's his goals, it's his recovery. And similarly for the healthcare system or practitioners or clinicians not assuming or being presumptive about his capacity to engage or not engage in that. So Hamza, you've spoken about accessibility for young people, for the elderly. What does accessible healthcare look like for people from diverse backgrounds? If you then take those challenges to people who don't have proficiency in English or who don't relate to uh, what I would say is a Western orientation of healthcare. So we talk about regulation and rights, and those are very important constructs, but the way that that is sort of played out and understood in different cultures, there's the whole barrier around whether it's even appropriate to complain because you should be grateful for the fact that you're receiving that care. You should have respect for the healthcare practitioner. You know, you can put out a whole lot of stuff there about uh, rights and being a partner and uh, being able to make a complaint and all of these things. But again, if you don't make that accessible in context, in context, take into account somebody's uh, cultural background, beliefs and understandings of how they might navigate a system. Again, a great win, as Darlene says, for the community in general to have these mechanisms in place, but just incredibly complex and incredibly uh, inaccessible if you don't take into account and the broad range of people who access our healthcare system. So can we go to you, Darlene? When we talk about accessibility for people from diverse backgrounds, we can think of interpreting services of translation, but then there must be more to it than that, right? The first response is often around interpreted materials. Um, that's great. And particularly if you know your community languages, uh, don't make assumptions. You really have to be connected to your communities to know what languages they need. But there's a whole lot of, it's not just about translating words, it's also about translating the concepts. And you need to take the time, again, to understand what are those critical issues? Do people understand that concept? Do they think about, in terms of a cultural perspective, of health or self-management 
or that treatment? Are there is there stigma or taboo around particular um, illnesses that you need to be exploring? So it's really um, anytime you're talking about information and information for uh, those communities and people most at risk of poor outcomes and poor health, you've got to think about their information needs. So Hamza, if we take a step back and start thinking at a high level, these communities, I mean, I guess some people can call them vulnerable, we can call them priority, at risk. How do we how do we start to define who they are? Fundamentally, when we talk about vulnerable communities, we have to take a step back and ask ourselves the question, what creates that vulnerability? Yeah. So in my mind, um, I think when we start talking about people as vulnerable, that that's preloaded with a whole lot of assumptions around who they are and what we do and an expectation that they ought to conform to the way that we see uh, the world. Um, and so I would actually reframe that as by saying, what are we, it's, it's fine to have recourse to complaint, to partnering in healthcare, but actually what supports do we put in place or not? to enable people to equitably engage in that process. So I would argue that actually what we've got is, yes, potentially I'll concede the point vulnerable communities, but we have to take a step back forward and ask ourselves, are we a part of creating that vulnerability? And what can we do differently to, to minimise or, or reduce the effects of that vulnerability? So in other words, I guess what I'm saying is, is are we create you know, the, Vulnerable communities are potentially communities that are vulnerable because there's limited supports. They don't have the social or economic um, means structurally in society. And that actually we need to be mindful of what those limited supports are and address those limited supports to decrease vulnerability and therefore increase access. I think a good health care experience is different for different people. And uh, we are not all the same. We have different skills, experiences, cultures, connections to others, uh, exposure to previous experiences, our healthcare experiences, cumulative, what happened to us when we had our tonsils out when we were four, sort of carries through right through until we have our babies and, and um, other surgery. Our communities are increasingly complex and complex health conditions. So that means it's quite different. And also we've got... Uh, such increased inequity, you know, the gap between the haves and have-nots is growing. So it's not the same for everyone. I also want to think about um, not only what it looks like, but what it feels like. And for me, that is really important. We don't talk enough about the emotion in healthcare. So good healthcare feels, um, feels safe. And that means I know that they're, I'm not going to suffer from unintended consequences or adverse outcomes. I feel empowered. I've got a sense of control. I feel I'm more active in my care. I understand what's happening. I feel confident enough to ask questions. And if I get an answer to my question I don't understand, then follow up with that. I feel confident enough to be documenting my um, interactions with the health system so I've got records that I can go back to. Um, if things go wrong, I want uh, the system to be open and honest about it. And I want to be involved in um, discussions about ways to then address what's happened. So it's a lot about feeling. 
it also looks like partnership, but partnership, a very practical way uh, of looking at that for me is not only seeing us as patients as critical to um, the care team, and you've got to hear from us because it's the reality of our life and our bodies that we're dealing with, but recognising too our families or our significant people as patient safety partners and sort of monitoring what's happening. Time and time again, I hear the um, voice of the carers uh, discounted, and that's something that we need to do to do better at. So, and I think it's about access to information so we can make informed decisions. Um, and that includes talking about the risks inherent in healthcare. You mentioned earlier um, about knowing when you can make a complaint and when you can speak up. As a, as a regulator, it's that's something that's um, of utmost importance that we can ensure that all people um, can access safe healthcare. And if they can't, then their voice can be heard and something can be done about that. Darling, could you speak about what access to making a complaint feels like from that, from that concept perspective? Making a complaint in healthcare is tough business because of the emotional workload it presents to you. We know that uh, it works best when you have a chronology of events, when you've got a clear listing of the, of the people involved, of the organisations, times and dates. Therefore, there's a fair bit of workload around compiling your thinking around that. The best outcome for those consumers who have the time and energy and confidence to make complaints is when they're really clear about what the issues are. Uh, we have supported people um, in recent time through APRA complaints on very complicated matters. Uh, and they've not received the satisfaction that they were looking for in having those matters uh, addressed, partly because of the complicated nature and maybe they'd identified far too many issues. Um, the advice we give to people is think really caref carefully about why you're making the complaint is it you want an apology? Is it that you want change as a result? Are you looking for financial compensation? Do you want action taken against someone who you feel is not a safe practitioner? But be really clear about it. Then after that, uh, you work out who you want to complain to. So increasingly, we're saying to people, they have to understand that for an APRA complaint, it has to be very, very serious. And most of us, thankfully, do not experience things that are that bad that APRA would need to take action. So we encourage people to go in the ACT to their health services commissioner um, and there's health complaints entities in other states and territories. And we think that's the place for people to go. It's probably the best door because the health complaints entities and the health services themselves, they will know when it meets that threshold for it to be referred to APRA. Otherwise, what we see is that um, people go through the APRA notification process uh, there's no further action taken because it doesn't meet the threshold and people actually start to lose confidence in the ability of the regulator to listen to them, take their action and take action to address the issues of concern for them. But of course, Darlene, complaints do have an important role to play in the healthcare system. Do you have any reflections on that? Complaints ultimately do drive change and I think they are gold for health services if we can have health services who are truly listening to consumers and finding out about their experience, they can it can drive their quality improvement program. And that is, we want learning organisations. We want to improve on, on current um, processes. 
And by listening to consumers and carers about their experience of care, whether it's through a complaints process or uh, regular conversations, just checking in at the bedside or through administration processes, uh, we can actually get the accessible health services that we all desire. Uh, and I think as Darlene says, when, when you're working with um, consumers, you've got to remember that if you're working with a treating team, there's a power imbalance even before you've got started because they're your treating team, right? And if you're concerned about something, that whole education piece around how you can do that and to be able to feel safe in doing that and knowing where to get people to raise those concerns such that ideally what, what success looks like is, is when you've got people feeling confident to be able to deal with things at source before it becomes an APRA matter. But it's almost about saying to people, it's okay to do that and to go through those steps before it becomes APRA and almost that whole community education around that. Because even for me as a relatively well-informed health consumer with lived experience from the point of view being being a carer uh, and also being connected to other health consumers and being connected to our state peak, which is Health Consumers Queensland, uh, which does a really terrific job, um, you're still learning all of the time because as Darlene says, there's a lot of emotional energy invested in just your interactions day to day. And if things are going a bit awry, the idea that you then might document that and be clear about what you're saying and, what, and for what purpose um, is pretty um, pretty daunting, even if you're a well-informed and seasoned health consumer, dare I say it, <laughs> right? So if you've then got somebody who's sort of had a really poor experience and they don't even un understand the notion of, of, of what a health consumer is and what that role involves and the fact that you do have um, an ability to provide feedback and a right to... Um, make complaint and to seek recourse on things that are, uh, are not working out. Um, you, you know, to get people into that place, they, they, they just need to know what the channels and the processes are and often also need to know where they might be able to draw upon that support as well. I'm going to jump in here to tell you about another Taking Care episode that you might be interested in. In continuing the telehealth conversation, we heard from Kate Ellis, a healthcare consumer who needed to change to receiving care via telehealth during the pandemic and what that's like and what that means for consumers. Context is very powerful. And from a patient perspective, when you're out of your, very much out of your comfort zone in, in an environment that's not so familiar to you, it's a harder learning environment to have someone in their own home. That individual is going to be more relaxed and more receptive to, to suggestion and advice and to learning. If that snippet piqued your interest, please do search for Taking Care in your podcast player and make sure you subscribe for all the latest episodes. And let's get back to Hamza and Darlene. Darling, could you talk about some of the opportunities that you see for not just more accessible healthcare, but safer healthcare for everyone? Many of the complaints we hear about relate to communication and whether it's uh, appropriate written documentation that is shared with consumers or between doctors um, or the communication style. Um, our health services are under exceptional pressure. Um, our patients are sicker and presenting often later in um, sort of the disease course. The health services are often understaffed. 
the staff are run off their feet. They don't have the time to provide the care that they've been trained to often. It's a matter of compromise at every point. And that actually doesn't support good quality care. If the staff are not um, well supported in their workplace and have the time to deliver the care that they want to, it's not good for staff culture and morale, and it has a flow-on impact um, to the consumer experience of care. So I think that's partly why we see so many complaints about um, communication. Uh, with the um, move towards uh, more digital health records, the information, that will partially solve the information issues, um, especially if we can have systems where consumers and carers have access to our clinical records. Hamza, what about you? Any opportunities for safer, more accessible healthcare in the experiences that you see around you? In the case of my daughter, who um, was diagnosed a couple of years ago with a pretty rare condition um, that essentially resulted in her being in intensive care for 42 days, which is a long time, the, the, the rate of medication change that that girl was having to go through was incredible. We learned about the names of medications that I never knew existed, right? <laughs> um, and my wife is pretty switched on lady. She was there a lot more of the time because I had other things to do in terms of making sure the other kids and the rest of the family were supported through that process. But we played good tag team, but she was there at the bedside with my daughter. But when these changes were being sort of made, the pharmacy IT system that dispenses the medication up to the intensive care ward in the same hospital had two systems and those systems didn't talk to each other. So you had two lots of error. You had risk of manual error through shift handover, but then also the issue of error potentially through manually that being recorded, but then it not transferring down to pharmacy in real time and that information then coming back to the bedside in terms of uh, the dispensing of those medications as they were uh, supposed to be happening. So you can see like, wow, digital healthcare system, it should all be talking to each other and it should all be linked. The reality is, is that we're at the beginning stages of that. I don't think we're there yet. I think the opportunities that it presents are phenomenal, done well. But I actually think what we've got is uh, a patchwork quilt of a range of digital systems that are often developed in isolation that don't connect or talk to each other within the healthcare system. And they certainly don't connect to being available on the palm of your phone to you as a consumer in a way that makes sense. And I think until we sort of think about what does that look like at the bedside, what does that look like to a consumer in a way that's meaningful to them, where they can actually be an equal partner in the conversations with the clinical teams that are administering care, that until we get to that point, the promise of digital health um, is one that, um, you know, whilst it's fantastic potential, um, still needs a lot of work, so we shouldn't be naive to that fact. Yeah, isn't it, is it interesting that we talk about the importance of communication between practitioners, between patients, but it's also communication between interfaces and systems because we do all exist together in these overlapping ways, Darlene? Yeah, that's incredibly important in the Australian healthcare system where there's NGOs providing care, private providers, public providers... Uh, there's complementary therapies as well as the Medicare benefits schedule and the pharmaceutical benefits schedule. We have a fragmented system and every point of transition between those systems, every point of handover presents us with significant safety issues. 
And I, and I think adding to that, so that was sort of the system's point. And I think, yeah, darling, that fragmentation doesn't just end within healthcare systems digitally talking to each other. It's also organisationally accessible healthcare and accessible health regulation. And um, I think we've got lots of little cogs in the wheel that and constituent parts that sum together, if they're connected and work well, are great. But actually unpacking that and bringing that all together in a form that's more accessible is work in progress. And I'm going to ask you the difficult question, how will we know when we're there? How will we know when we've achieved safe, accessible healthcare? Uh, I think that we'll know that we've achieved safe, accessible healthcare when there's a level of confidence um, for people to raise issues at source. And the way that we will know that we have achieved that and prevented um, poor healthcare outcomes is our ability to know when and where and why and who has raised those issues. So I think I think that we don't know that at the moment. I don't think that information is collected. And certainly, um, it's certainly not broken down into different population groups because I could say to you, hand on heart, you know, if you're talking about people living with disabilities or people um, of multicultural um, uh, background, there is a lot of, um, uh, you know, under-reporting or under-utilisation of those complaint systems. And we have no knowledge even of the extent to that under-utilisation or under-reporting because we actually don't break down when and where people have attempted to engage with the system and whether that's worked or not. And until we can say confidently that we've built in the processes that people know where to go, but that also we can retrospectively analyze um, through good information collection at source that that's happening and what's happened to resolve things, that we won't be able to say hand on heart that we have an accessible healthcare system. Yeah, I agree with you, Hamza. Although I'm not as despairing as you about it. I think we do have a few anchor points here that can help us. There are a range of standards that have been developed with consumer and care input um, that spell out what is um, what good healthcare looks like. And that's the national standards. The College of GPs have got standards. The pharmacists have got standards. Dental standards, a whole range um, have standards. We also have um, professional bodies as well as ARPA with the codes of conduct and codes of ethics that set out again what we as consumers can expect from our health professionals and those health professionals in turn are held to that standard. So there's mechanisms in place to make sure that happens. Um, but we do have a little bit more work to do, to do around increasing the levels of health literacy in our community. That will make a difference. And by health literacy, I mean you know, people understanding the system that they're accessing, that they have access, they can access information that they need to be making good decisions, that they have confidence to act on that information. But we also need services who are responsive to the diversity of our communities and not deliver cookie cutter approaches. So clinical guidelines and the development of clinical guidelines are fantastic because it starts to standardise care. But Hamza, the way you would experience a disease and the way I experience it based on our own um, lived experiences, past experiences, and um, just the fact um, our, um, of how our bodies work needs to be recognised. So the person-centred care element has to come into play. I also agree with you that there is an underreporting, and we don't quite have the safety culture in health services. But again, it's not all health services, and it's not all areas of health services. Um, people know that there are some areas where uh, people probably need to do a little bit better than others. Um, and part of it that we're very interested in exploring is how can we make sure that 
consumers are providing feedback on their experiences, either through a complaints process or why don't we be, be um, uh, take a risk and actually enable consumers and carers to make incident reports in RiskMan and the incident um, management systems directly so that that could be fed into uh, the analysis. So look, I think we've got a way to go, but let's not lose sight on the fact that we do have some strong structures in place um, to safeguard us and, and to make care more accessible. Yeah, look, I'm not despairing entirely. I agree. I mean, I think we've got some shifts happening around uh, PREMS and PROMS, which is patient reported experience um, measures. So that stuff that actually Darlene started off with about what does it feel like, people's experiences, but also people's outcomes of care. Um, you know, so the PROMS, which is a patient recording um, outcome measure scales as well, that are increasingly being talked about and adapted to an Australian healthcare context. So I think, you know, th those tools and the ability for them to be rolled out and talk to health consumers in real time about what does care feel like and what are your care outcomes represent great promise. We've got to build in the tools as well as the processes that allow us to say, yes, we're accessible and we can build on things, but also have the ability to know whether we're reaching people or not reaching people. And I think that's really important. Thank you, Hamza and Darlene for, wow, just the beginning of so many important conversations that we need to keep on having and changes that are real and really need to be made. Thanks, Tash, and for the opportunity. And Darlene, once again, great to be with you as always. Yeah, thanks, Hamza, and thank you, Tash. And good on APRA for uh, taking the step to explore the consumer perspective on these issues around access. And thank you for listening to Taking Care. You can rate, review, subscribe to episodes by searching for Taking Care in your favourite podcast player. It's also available on our website. And we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at communications at Until next time.